0: Herb Alper in the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Cestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. A guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, as the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And as per usual, Dave Cameron utilizes his time on this episode to analyze all baseball. Sort of uh, baseball being analyzed today, or the sort of topics that are being analyzed within baseball today. Uh, well, we start with an article that Cameron posted on Monday. In fact. Called Trout versus Harper, the great debate, or maybe it was Trout and Harper, the great debate, something along those lines. Uh, the debate is not, in this case, uh, it is not who was better in, in 2012. Uh, in fact, Mike Trout was not only much better than than every other rookie, uh, he was he was better than every player uh, in in the majors this this year, and uh, probably posted uh, what will go down as one of the great seasons in Major League Baseball history. No, in this case, the debate concerns. Who will be the better player overall uh, after all is said and done? Who will have, uh, I guess, the better career, Mike Trout or Bryce Harper? Because I want you uh, to listen to the remainder of of this podcast. I won't tell you who Dave Cameron says. uh, And also don't go read the article because then you'll find out. So that's that's suspense for you. Also discussed in this edition of the podcast – uh, Giancarlo Stanton, and actually how he compares to, to Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. The difficulties, uh, and this concerns projections, and we extend this to a conversation of Nate Silver and and, and models as well, uh, projecting players like like Mike slash Giancarlo Stanton. How do we know when we see a player like this in, in Class A or High A? How do we know that he's also going to become an excellent player? We discuss projections and how they pertain to fan specifically. Uh, we'll be hosting three or four or five different projection systems uh, over the course of the off season, I asked Cameron to sort of lay out the schedule for their uh, individual releases onto the site, and also we discussed uh, Miserus Tourists, he signed a three year, nine or ten million dollar with the Blue Jays. Cameron uh, was more bullish on him. The uh, the Fangraphs readership, uh, by means of our contract uh, crowdsourcing project, they were more bullish on him. We look at that, and uh, oh, also David Ross. We mentioned David Ross and again. Uh, it's Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball, so really uh, to provide it. A summary is, is very difficult. as I encourage you to listen to what follows. And, in fact, what follows is Fangraphs Audio uh, featuring managing editor Dave Cameron and beginning right now. i
1: come back from the cafe,
0: and uh, at the cafe I was writing a piece about uh, you.
1: Yes, I saw. Did you actually go through and count all those blinks, or are those numbers made up?
0: No, 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 I I did. Due diligence.
1: Wow. Yeah. Rob blinks a lot.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, it's really really what it's led to, for me, is to ask what is a normal amount of blinks. Actually, I could do that. I could do that. I guess I could uh, have looked it up. I was uh, pressed for time, though.
1: Right. We need, like, a control group, because it feels like I am one extreme and maybe Rob is the other.
0: I think Rob, I think probably Rob is, well, um, it's hard to say how extreme you are because you, there's nothing beyond it. Uh,
1: right. Well, I'm clearly the outlier of all outliers because no one can possibly blink left.
0: Right. Yeah. That's what's happening though. That's the sort of uh, coverage uh, that you're going to get at Knockgraphs. Right. The sort of crack coverage. Blink stats. I think that I out my game a little bit since last year because last year it was just like how many times did Dave Cameron blink? But now, right. I mean, we did it by set, you know, like by interval. I, I think it's a little bit more rigorous.
1: Right. Uh, you'll get a, a Peabody Award for your investigative journal. Do you think there's
0: anything else we could add to it I mean, besides maybe looking at it as an index? An index stat relative <laughs> to human average. A blink human... plus. Yeah, right. Well I think that um I my guess is that the average human would blink more like a you know, like if he's on television or whatever, just because it's an unfamiliar setting. And plus like in that particular case you're just looking right at it like you're just looking at a camera in a weird room, right?
1: Yeah, and the fun thing is like, you know, when we were doing the panel the other day, I didn't realize they were gonna put up all of our faces side by side when anyone was talking. So but there were times when I'm like staring off in the face and they are like, Look at the camera, like, oh. so <laughs> So there's like a I don't know if you have noticed it. But there's one point where I'm just like my mouth open and I'm just staring off into nowhereville.
0: Right, because you were, you're assuming that you're not a.
1: Right, I mean, someone else was talking. I had nothing to say. I was like, I don't need to pay attention. And then in my ear, they're like, "Look at the camera, please." So, you know.
0: Do you uh, uh would you say? I mean, what what percent of a of a Famigraph's audio episode uh, do you spend just looking blankly off into space?
1: Hundred
0: <laughs> percent. Cameron, you know. It's great how much you enjoy doing this weekly, on a weekly basis. Uh
1: yes, that is that with no sarcasm whatsoever.
0: Yeah, right. No, 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 that's great. Um let's you know, let's uh let's expedite your appearance by starting right away. Uh I suppose that there is a there is a great debate. Is it um it didn't I'll be honest, it doesn't seem that great to me, but you have you say Trout versus Harper.
1: I mean I think there is uh a pretty significant divide where I mean, we are just going to talk about 2012 performance, there's not, you know, Harper was clearly not as good as Mike Kraut was last year. But I think if you uh, pull a lot of, you know, uh, interesting baseball people who um, have some reason to have their opinions taken seriously, I, I think you'd find a pretty decent split on who they would rather have going forward. Uh, they're different players so with different skill sets. Um, you know, I think... I, I don't think it's clear cut one way or another that you would definitely rather have southern
0: or Harper. Right. Okay. So, so the, the, what we're looking at here, we're not looking at 2012. Right. We're, that happened. Uh, I mean, Mike Trout had. I mean, one of the best seasons of uh, this uh, of the 2000s so far. I mean, it was one of
1: the best seasons of all time. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So there you are. So that's that's a good thing to do. Uh, right, but then, but what what I think you do is you start off by looking at th- those those metrics that uh, tend to be tend to carry over more season to season.
1: Yeah, so I think like you know, I mean, anytime you look at Trout and Harper and you look at their overall performance, if you look at like batting average on base slugging, you know, H- Harper is way behind. Uh, Trout basically destroyed him across the board in metrics that value production uh, or the measure of production. Um, but, you know, and I, I think it's interesting if you look at the stats that are more predictive, the things that carry over from year to year and kind of directly measure what we consider to be actual baseball skills, they're pretty close. <laughs> uh, Trout and Harper had basically the same walk rate, basically the same strikeout rate, uh, exactly the same ground ball rate. Uh, their bat at ball profiles across the board were almost exactly the same, line drives, fly balls, everything was really similar. Uh, Trout's isolated slugging was a little bit higher, but that was mostly just a... Uh, uh homer to fly ball issue where, you know, a few more of his balls cleared the wall, um, which could, you know, part of that could be due to age. With 20 versus 19, there is strength differences there. So, um, and, you know, the gap is pretty small. So I think, you know, one of the things I just wanted to highlight is, you know, despite the fact that Trout uh, destroyed Harper in total production, it was mostly some things that we don't consider core skills.
0: Right. Now, what do we think about – so is it, it appears as though – and perhaps I'm being rash in this assessment, but it appears as though Mike Trout can stick in center field for, I you know, I guess for as long as his body allows him to. But it, right. it looks like he's going to be able to stay there for a while.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's no question Trout has a defensive difference and a base running difference. And, like, you know, one of the things I try to address is uh, – that we don't want to assume that these differences are all going to completely go away. I mean, I think Trout's going to be a better defender and a better base runner for probably the duration of their healthy careers. You know, one could certainly suffer a significant knee injury that would change things. Um, but as long as both stay relatively healthy, I think that Trout will have a base running and defense advantage over Harper. The question is kind of a magnitude of the differences. Will those differences that were so large last year continue to be as large going forward and does Harper have enough offensive upside to cancel out the difference with his hitting?
0: <clears throat> right, that's the question. What do you th- what do you see as Harper's sort of defensive home um, say, uh, this next year, say three years from now, you know, seven years from now?
1: I think Harper probably ends up as a right fielder, and I think you know if we were looking at players defensively the way we did fifteen or twenty years ago, and we said Trout's a center fielder and Harper's a right fielder, therefore Trout is significantly more valuable, you know, uh, because of position scarcity, um, then I think we'd probably see a pretty big difference. I think that way of thinking about positions and defensive value is a little bit out of date. Um, I think what we know, uh, based on, you know, what teams have done over the last few years and advances in defensive systems is that you can be a really valuable defensive corner outfielder. I mean, Carl Crawford, Brett Gardner, Ichiro Suzuki, There are a lot of guys who've been um, you know, just as valuable in a corner outfield spot as they would be in center, or at least really close to it. Um, So I don't think we want to look at Harper and say, okay, he's a right fielder, therefore the defensive gap between him and Trout, who's a center fielder, is going to necessarily be massive. I think we know that Harper's got a a cannon arm, one of the best arms in baseball. Trout has an average arm. um, So I think there's going to be value there from having Harper in right field gunning down base runners. And he, you know, he's pretty fast himself. He got nine triples left. year, actually more than Mike Trout had. Um, you know, I don't think Harper's going to turn into a, a below average range guy. So, you know, I think if we see Trout as a plus ten defensive right fielder, and Harper is a, you know, or in Trout as a, you know, plus five, maybe even plus ten defensive center fielder, which is tougher because you're going up against a, a better core of players, uh, that means the defensive gap's gonna probably be around one win or so per year. Which is you know a real difference in, in Trout's favor, but isn't so much that we just say okay, Trout's a center fielder; he can hit a lot worse than Harper and still be the better player.
0: Now, the unique thing about having Trout and Harper in the league, um, of course, both impressing uh, this year uh, for various reasons, is that I, I think that you could pretty, uh, I think that you could fairly characterize either of them as generational talents. Um, of course, the surprising thing is they've both occurred not only in, within the same generation. Uh, but in the same year, essentially, they've both had their breakout seasons. Um, is there is there any other young player you could see, um, just based off of what, what what Trout and Harper have done so early on, is there any other young player around that you could see approaching them, that we could reasonably project to approach them in terms of the production we might expect out of them? Yeah, so
1: one of the interesting things when I was writing the <laughs> article, I actually like almost geared off into turning it into a Mike Stanton piece or Giancarlo Stanton piece. Because I think when you look at uh his skills and his performance and his age, he's not that far behind them. Like he's uh you know, if we're gonna talk about and like I did in the piece, you know, Trout's um, power and how kind of that plays up better in the prime of your career than speed and defense do, uh Stanton's the best young power hitter we've seen in baseball in I don't know, fifty years. <laughs> I mean for him I mean it's, it's 1,600 six hundred as a twenty two year old. Uh, you know, he's got a career five, fifty floating percentage despite the fact that uh His first three years in the majors have all happened uh, really early in his career. Um, you know, more than half of his extra base hits is a, in his career home runs. Uh, Stanton is like a monster power hitter at a really young age, and this kind of thing is usually um, very predictive of like long, sustained offensive performance. Stanton might not be a, a defensive asset uh, in the same range as Trout and Harper, and, you know, he's, he's already got some knee problems. It's not that hard to see Stanton becoming... You know, maybe more of a, a below-average defender, maybe, you know, even in his 30s having to move to first base or doesn't a hitter. But I think in terms of offensive potential, Stanton might be the best young hitter in baseball, even better than these two. Now, what does that – I guess what,
0: what can we learn from that? Because while Stanton was uh, – I mean, Stanton was a second-round pick, you know, which is – a, is a, he, he was drafted as a, as a high school student, so, you know, as a high schooler, so you can expect some variance there. Um, and while he was um, generally praised as a prospect, he only ever got onto he didn't get onto 2008 prospect list. He finally got on before 2009, and 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 then of course 2010. He was ranked within the top 20 on BA's list, for example, uh, their overall top 100 prospects. But even those um, rankings, you know, you don't necessarily, if you're if you're expecting a guy who could be, uh, you know. Who's going to be maybe even the best player, one of the best hitters in the league? Almost immediately, um, it seems like you know that would deserve at least the top ten both times, top five. I'm curious as to like what do we learn from Mike Stanton's resurgence, or is he just kind of has he just been the best case scenario for a certain type of player?
1: So I think what you see with Stanton is that it, the hardest thing to project in baseball is hitting, you know, right? So you can look at a guy like Trout and say, well that's a plus center fielder who's going to steal, you know, a lot of bases when he gets on base. Um, you know, those kind of skills are pretty obvious both fastball velocity. But trying to look at a guy like Stanton who definitely does have holes in his swing and struck out, you know, 30% of his time in a ball, um and trying to figure out whether he's going to be able to make those adjustments against better quality pitchers, uh, good breaking moves, whether he's going to chase pitches out of the zone, whether he's got a good enough approach to, um, you know, not be exploited against, uh, you know, sliders down and away, fastballs up and in. Uh, you know, I think in some regards, it's not insane to look at a young Giancarlo Stanton and see an Alfonso Soriano career path where you say, you know, there's a lot of swing and miss, It's a lot of power, but it's so much swing and miss that it's going to cancel out a lot of his value. Uh, for whatever reason, that, that Stanton's been able to improve on his strikeout rate uh, in the major leagues. The last couple of years, it's, it, his strikeout rate's actually lower than it was uh, back in Greensboro when I saw him in 2008. Uh, and you don't usually see guys with severe contact problems in the, in the low minors improve their strikeout rate in the major leagues over what it was against inferior pitching. So even though Stanton was really young and he showed a ton of power, there were legitimate concerns over whether you put the bat on the ball often enough to make that power play, and that's just really you know, probably the toughest thing to predict in all of baseball.
0: Yeah, well, I know that uh, Mike Newman has sort of what he considers the prototype for this sort of hitter, uh, but in this case going probably a different direction, and that's a, a Yankees power-hitting prospect, or maybe quasi-prospect at this point, sort of fringe at the, in that way, uh, Cody Johnson. Uh, Cody Johnson, in in uh, Newman's estimation, just in terms of like pure power on contact, has you know a 75 or an 80, right? But but you also have to take into account when you're looking at in-game play, like does he make enough uh, does he make enough contact to you know so that that power is going to play, right? And maybe his strikeout rate you know in the a Class A Sally League wasn't that much different than Stanton's, but as you can see, with just a little bit more contact. A little bit, you know, improving on that metric a little bit. That's that's the difference between a very promising young major leaguer and then now Cody Johnson, who played the majority of his past season, I think, in Double A.
1: Right. I, I mean, I think there's definitely a line uh, at which contact problems become exponentially more problematic. So I think you know Russell Brand is another example of this. Was so a guy who struck out 40% of the time in the minors, uh, had massive 80 power, could hit the ball really long way, powered all fields. Um, but his contact problems were so dramatic that when he got to the major leagues, he was, his flaws were exploitable to the point where he didn't make enough contact in order to turn himself into a good major league player. And so, you know, maybe the we think of like, oh, a 27% strikeout rate and a 32% strikeout rate aren't that different. But I think when you start adding, you know, uh, incremental levels, the, the issues that it creates at the major league level, uh, Get substantially higher. So, you know, if you see a guy with a 37, 38, 39% contact rate, it's probably indicative of a a significant flaw that major league pitchers can exploit that minor league pitchers can't, uh, or at least not to a degree that it can stop them from being productive. When you see 27, 28%, maybe that means that he's able to cover the plate enough. He just doesn't swing it um, the right kind of pitches. and that approach can be taught. So, I think what we're basically seeing in the numbers is the difference between. Uh, you know, maybe a, an approach that needs upon, improvement upon um, or a, just a fundamental flaw in a fling that can't be fixed.
0: Right. Yeah, and actually, uh, so I, I don't know if this dovetails nicely, but um, there is one sort of thing I wanted to address that you that you uh, discussed earlier in the week, and I think it was right after Election Day, um, because you and I haven't talked since Election Day, was uh, this idea of, um, was Nate Silver, I think it was a piece you wrote called Nate Silver and in, in, uh, Imperfect Modeling. Um, something to that effect, yeah? Yeah, yeah,
1: I wrote that book.
0: Um, right, and so the, in, what we're discussing right now is is in a sense um, one version of that, right, where it's like here are some facts we have about this player and then you can look at that relative to what position he plays and you can look at that, um, I, I guess, relative to what we've seen other players with either a 35% strikeout rate or a 27% strikeout rate, what they've become. Of course, that's how Nate Silver started really with his picota projections right is like trying to look at precedents and seeing what the ranges are of that precedent and that's what he applied uh, you know in this case and you know much more famously to politics.
1: right I mean, so I think you know what what we see in baseball is that we have you know definitely imperfect and sometimes biased data. But more than that, I think our models aren't perfect. So, you know, I think when we look at projection systems, you know, they're mostly based on, you know, weighted three-year averages, adding some regression, uh, aging curves, which are based on a um, kind of an overall stereotype for uh, given player types or sometimes just all players in general. We apply a lot of kind of arbitrary modeling to specific players who are pretty different. And so, um, you know, I think when people make criticisms of, you know, like a VIX projection system or, um, you know, aging curves that we use and assumptions that we make based on what we know about historical players, their criticisms aren't wrong. Like, these models are definitely imperfect, uh, even when the data isn't biased, and sometimes it, it, the data is biased, um, even with things like strikeout rate where you're pretty sure that this guy actually struck out the number of times that he, <laughs> he was recorded as having struck out, right. uh, the model that we're applying to strikeout rate is still, uh, problematic. And it, it has large error bars. Um, But I think, you know, what we saw with with Nate is that when you put uh, an imperfect model in the hands of someone who kind of understands an imperfect model and can intelligently write around those models' imperfections, you can still get some useful information. I don't think we should have expected. Nate to nail all 50 states. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we should expect that to happen every single time. Like, I think people who look at this and say, Nate Silver's a genius who's figured out elections. Uh, that's probably not true either. I mean, Nate Silver won a bunch of claims flips that were pretty close where he called a 60-40 race uh, slightly in one direction and then ended up going his direction most of the time. It's not always going to work out that way. But at the same time, hopefully the lesson can be imperfect models uh are okay and we shouldn't shun models just because they're not perfect.
0: I mean, do... With these sorts of things, and especially with projections, do we use them as anchors, so to speak, where we say this is the thing we'll start with because, given what we know, um, given the the inputs that inform the model, this is what we would expect as an average, essentially, um, and we'll use that as an anchor, and then we'll you know we'll look at specific cases um, around that, which may which may uh, bring us in one direction or another, but that is the that is the sort of that is what uh, we're going to start with, this this information, and then um, apply details to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, certainly one approach and probably the approach that most people are comfortable with. I do think it's interesting when you look at kind of Nate's career, both as a baseball writer and a political writer, is his biggest misses have come when he's tried to make, uh, you know, subjective adjustments to his model, where his model says this, and he says, well, that doesn't line up with what I think reality is. He goes against his model, and it just seems like more often than not his model has been right uh, so do you have, these, think would, do you have any
0: specific the, instances of that? That would be interesting.
1: Uh, so I think a few years ago where there was a pretty notable Pakoda, this was in like 2007, 2008, uh, a notable Pakoda projection for a team uh, might have been the year they projected the White Sox to go 72 and 90 and they actually did. I, I Don't quote me on this because I was five or six years old, but I think Nate wrote an article saying, like, here's why I think Pakoda underrating them a little bit. And it turns out <laughs> the Pakoda nailed it. Uh, you know, I think that what we've seen is when we look at subjective uh tweaking to models, we don't always add improvement. And so I think we need to be careful when we say, okay, yes, this is our anchor and this is what we should expect, but we know this other thing. If we know that other thing to be true, we should try and work it into the model. And uh so I think in general we're probably better off uh mostly adhering to what the model tells us and only making tweaks for things that can't be quantified, such as, like, domestic abuse or drinking problems or, you know, those kind of factors. Uh, but when we get to start to say, okay, well, this is what the model tells us, and I don't like the results, so I'm just going to unilaterally improve it, mm-hmm. I think we can get ourselves into trouble.
0: Yeah, I, you know where I bet you're, you'll you find that more often than not is on team-oriented team, affili- team oriented sites. Um, yeah. I don't know. I uh, I would presume, even though I respect you and your work, Cameron, that you are occasionally guilty of it, and otherwise, too, because you be, you develop such an Intimate knowledge of all these players that you feel that on the one hand you you, you might have increased hubris when when uh, discussing them and at the same time you might be in some sense too intimately uh a, a sort of um, uh, aware of them or or knowledgeable of them such that you you will go too far in a, in another direction.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's definitely for it's like well, you know people who follow specific players specific teams. Uh, it, Generally, we do so uh, to our own fault. That's <laughs> where we say, okay, I'm going to become so familiar with this guy's strengths and spend so much time writing about the possible outcomes that I'm maybe going to lose sight of the forest from the trees and, and understand what the likely outcome is. And I think you'll see this with, you know, especially uh, marginal prospects on, on uh, teams where you'll see, oh man, we can't trade this guy. Yeah, I know he looks like a fourth outfielder, but there's a 15 or 20% chance that he turns into a, a good everyday player. Uh, you know, maybe a two or three win player and at the league minimum. That's a really valuable piece. Uh, you know, I think with the Mariners, we've seen that with uh, some people having a really strong affection for Casper Wells. He's a, you know, he's a guy with power, uh, plays all three outfield positions. Uh, there's a chance that Casper Wells could turn into a really useful player. And so there's a resistance to bringing in any kind of outfield upgrade because that would displace Casper Wells when we forget at the end of the day, Casper Wells is, you know, a pretty flawed player, strikes out too much, doesn't draw a lot of walks, is 28 years old and isn't likely to get any better.
0: So,
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I think we we can start to see the optimistic side of things too often and and the projections and the models can be a nice reality check and say, hey, don't forget this guy's a bench player.
0: Yeah, right, Casper Wells. Yeah, I can see how that that it would happen within an organization. Um, Hey, listen, we're talking about a bunch about projections, and uh, I'm asking both for the benefit of the listeners and also for my benefit. Uh, you've probably told me this, but uh, I, maybe I've forgotten. It. Here, here's the question: um, We do, of course, graphs. Uh, we host projections every year. Uh, we've done Steamer. We have, we've had Zips. We've had Bill James projections. Um, we've had maybe Roto Champ or something like this. What is the Kurt, what is our status this year for projections? When will we start seeing them? How are we treating them?
1: Uh the Bill James projections come out first every year because they're published in the Bill James handbook. The baseball inflow solutions put out almost immediately at the end of the season. So those are generally the first projections out. They're not comprehensive in that they don't project a, as large a player pool as a lot of the other ones. Uh they mostly just project guys who are gonna be everyday players and you know kind of bigger names. Um, so they're not necessarily a complete series of projections, but they're something to look at early if you're if you're interested in early looky looing. Um then I think, uh, the zips projections are going to start rolling out on Fangraphs, uh, team by team, uh, starting in December. So Dan Zimborski has previously rolled these out on Baseball Think Factory, Um but we're pretty happy that he's, uh, moving them over to Fangraphs this year. And so we're going to, uh, have several posts uh, a week in December and January, kind of going through the, the entire team rollouts to zips and walking through the, uh, those projections. And we're also going to have the steamer projections. Uh, so I think you know, you're going to have a, uh, a wide variety. You're going to be able to make your own fan projections uh, starting in January. So, um, if you like projections, Fangraphs is still the place for that.
0: And I've seen, I, I've seen Brian Carrey. I don't know if he's allowed to do this, but I've seen him mention uh, something to the effect that that Oliver or pieces of Oliver will have will play a part in at Fangraphs too.
1: And yeah. So uh, part of our merger with the Hardball Times, is that we also acquired the rights to the Oliver projection system. So that's mm-hmm. going to hit Fangraphs as well. I'm, uh, not exactly sure of the dates on that, but I'm I'm uh, aware of the fact that Oliver will be becoming
0: a Right, and Oliver is fun. I'll I'll say uh, because uh, it goes very deep into minor leaguers. Now, you know, of course, accuracy. The, you know, the further you go, fewer plate appearances, um, maybe more volatile environments. Who knows? But it's it's exciting at least just to see how Oliver assesses different minor leaguers relative to each other. If nothing else.
1: Yes, right. I mean, for people like you who love, uh, you know. Plunging the depths of backup catchers' labor. Oliver, is your
0: production. Yeah, and um, I, you said that you wanted to, to speak at some length about uh, minor league free agent Darwin Perez. Is that what you said?
1: Yeah, the, the exact length was uh, none. The, the <laughs> um, amount of care I give uh, about Darwin Perez is the amount of blinking I do
0: in a... Uh, <laughs> okay, you know, there actually was one, uh, there was one signing uh, that occurred over the past week that I wanted to address with you, because I know it's a it's a player about whom I think you might be more optimistic uh, than than other people, uh, and that's uh, Is Turris who signed, I think for three years, uh, three years, $9 million with the Blue Jays.
1: Uh, three ten,
0: I think. Okay, three ten, or maybe it's yeah. yeah, maybe it's a one-year buyout for a club, be a 4th uh, Yeah, something like that. Okay. I mean, guaranteed uh, 10 million. So
1: it's either three ten, three nine, or four twelve, or three ten, or something. It's somewhere in that range.
0: And 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 I've seen some I've seen some comments to the effect that, on the one hand, uh, perhaps that's a lot to play or to pay for a utility infielder. I'm suspicious about, or I'm suspicious about whether he will be playing utility. I mean. It uh, certainly, with the degree, you know, the amount that uh, we know that. Um... Oh, who's their very excitable third baseman there?
1: Uh, well, I don't know that they have an obvious answer in house. but To be honest with you, I don't expect insurance to play a lot of third base. From what I understand, they're uh, strongly shopping Yunel Escobar, and I think insurance is going to be a starting shortstop for next year, maybe even the year after that. And, uh, given what we know about the quality of shortstops in the major league. You get a starting up for $3 million. You well
0: Right. Well, that's what I'm suggesting. And also, a Danny Echeverria. Is it a Danny Echeverria? Yeah.
1: yeah. I, them, or, you know, I, I'm not right. sure hit.
0: Yeah, right. Well, there's there are some questions, I guess, about what he's able to do. I He he seemed to start a lot uh, over the last month or two of the season, but um, I think he, he certainly benefited from playing uh, his AAA games in Las Vegas, which has a, a very favorable uh, run environment for, for hitters, I should say. Um, yeah, and um, whether whether it's him or or um, I, I, I still think that Asturis has uh, there's a likely possibility he gets you know uh, full time esque uh, plate appearance uh, totals.
1: Right. I mean, I think the Jays have a, an infield flux. They know that Kelly Johnson's a free agent. They don't really want you to know Escobar back. And, um, you know, I think Esturis gives them a lot of flexibility and a lot of options, which is one of the reasons they were willing to deal, do do this deal so soon into the offseason that if they can't trade up maybe as far as slides in the second base, if they can trade Escobar, maybe if they're first up. Um, if they can't trade it and they find another second base runner, Kelly Johnson comes back, maybe he plays in third base. Um, you know, and I don't think there's any harm to having uh, a guy who gives you that, those kind of options and uh, lets you keep, stay away from saying, okay, well, you know, I have to make this because I need a player. Now the the Jays can kind of look for value at multiple positions rather than being worked in at one.
0: And realistically,
1: I think, you know, at $3 million a year, this doesn't have to be very good to be useful. And, uh, you know, I think we saw, like with Terry Hurston on the Dodgers last year, this kind of player can really be a, a pretty neat piece, uh, you know, a play-all-over-the-field kind of guy. And tenth, tenth player gets 400, 500 play appearances per year, you don't have to be uh, really fantastic to be useful in this role.
0: And uh, speaking of another player who's a neat piece uh, and who certainly produces – uh, quite a bit relative to the amount of time he spends on the field. Uh, David Ross also signed a contract over the past week. That was, was like Saturday night, maybe. Um, he signed a, a two-year, $6 million contract uh, with, uh, with the Red Sox, and he'll do some sort of backing up there. I don't know what the, what their situation is with Salta Lamacchia, Ryan LaVarnway, and then also there's some interest in Mike Napoli.
1: Yeah, I mean it sounds like they're not done at catcher. Uh the, the reports are they've been shopping Salt La pretty heavily. Uh Ross Falpola Machia would actually be an interesting platoon and in that Ross kills left handers and Salt Pull can't hit them at all, even though he's a switch hitter. Um so you would think that, you know, maybe you used to have Ross and Salt Power platoon, the goes back to the miners and uh, you know, they wouldn't necessarily need Napoli to catch much. But I mean, you know, there's not a better situation for Mike Napoli than Boston. Uh, it makes the most sense. He's their kind of player. He's got the green monster. He's probably going to end up taking a one year deal. So, you know, that's the, the best chance for him to go put up some big numbers and try and hit the market again next year. Um, and if he really wants to catch, uh, you know, you could do worse than a, than a Napoli, uh, Ross, LeBarnway trio where Napoli catches some, plays some first base, plays some BH. Uh, Ross gets a slightly expanded role over what he had in Atlanta. Um, because he's probably good enough to be more than just a straight platoon you know, backup catcher type, and uh, then you break in Mavarnway uh, a little slowly and you don't have to just give him a full catcher's load right off the bat. So if they can trade Paul Polakia for something interesting, I wouldn't be shocked if they sign Napoli and might with some kind of three-headed catcher rotation.
0: Um, the, uh, the the crowd uh, at Fangraphs, uh, of course, we we uh, facilitated some contract crowdsourcing uh, for, for notable free agents. Uh, David Ross, the crowd projected to get a two-year $10 million. Uh, two million or uh, ten million dollar deal, or maybe maybe two years, nine million. But uh, the Red Sox got him for two six.
1: Yeah, I think the crowd probably liked Ross a little too much. So yeah, when I saw that deal projected, I, I thought that was a little high. Um, I think two six is about right for Ross. Maybe a little low, but not not that low. I think you know you're looking at an older guy who's you know generally only had 150 to 200 play appearances per year and his offensive levels have been sustained by very high bats the last couple of years uh he strikes out a lot so he's got significant contact issues Uh, this is a a player with some real flaws who's at the end of his career i I don't know how much more you'd want to be uh committing to a guy who has some significant collapse potential
0: right but I, i mean do we assume that he's probably good for a win over the next couple of years at least we, you would
1: think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it would be hard to think that he's not going to provide at least one more, and you know, you know, six million dollars uh, is probably going to be a deal that the Red Sox would be happy to make. All
0: right, uh, I think you've fulfilled your duty to, to Fangraphs Audio. Unless you have anything you you need or want to add,
1: uh, I don't think I would like to add anything other than goodbye. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I do have. A, a, I think there are a couple other segments featuring you, though, um, at MLB.com. Uh, so I look forward to uh, to analyzing those.
1: Yeah, we taped eight of them on uh, uh, last Thursday. So uh, you have one for those?
0: One for every one of the awards, or something like that?
1: Yeah, we did. We did one for every single award. Um, so you know, I think you you'll have plenty of chances to try and find me blinking, and most likely you will fail.
0: Yeah, it's actually. Um, it's not. I mean, you could probably imagine this. It's one of the, the sort of concentration that has to go into seeing if someone else is blinking. Of course, requires that the person watching does not blink, and it uh, right. creates anxious moments. I, I don't think I will be doing it that much more because it's not that fun, to be honest. <laughs>
1: it, it sounds pretty terrible.
0: It doesn't. It's not fun at all. Um, but yeah, I wonder. I uh, wonder how Nyer feels about his performance. Uh, I, I noticed that he actually uh, retweeted the post, and uh, and uh, of course, uh, you know, maybe he's curious about about his own his own performance. You you think that he's he's on if there was a a blinking index metric that, that he would be on the above average?
1: He seems to be much higher than, you know, Brian Kenny or John Heyman or any of the other guests that are on there. It seems like Rob is maybe trying to compensate or show off. Maybe he's like, hey, you know, read Nation because I can blink and he's just trying to show people how frequently his eyes move. But he's a real human compared...
0: person, right?
1: Right. This is the stoic ra- ra- robots of Sane uh, So, you know, maybe this is Rob's way of taking a shot at us is he's just going to... Uh, overcompensate by something I
0: can't do well, I think that uh, the only the only reasonable uh, solution to this the, the, what's becoming very clearly a rivalry uh, is a is some sort of fist fight or other manner of contest uh, at the winter meetings uh i don't
1: know, I don't know about fist fight maybe uh not want to challenge Rob to a trivia contest he would kill me. Um, what sort of contest? Maybe a flannel off maybe <laughs> could, like, bring our competing flannels and uh I don't like you, chance really. yeah
0: it's you have to find a contest in which in which you guys would would feel uh somewhat evenly matched i guess and uh, it remains to be seen. maybe we can leave that to our listeners uh at least the three or four that have made it this far uh in what sort of contest uh would or dual a dual sort of thing uh, would would Rob and Cameron uh you know, have some sort of uh, equal footing. And uh, off the top of it, maybe a sort of, um, maybe a cuisine-off. I don't know, at least tasting cuisine. I don't know if you're a cook. Are you a good cook?
1: I'm an okay cook, but I think I'm a vegetarian, right? But our options.
0: Yeah, that's also true. Yeah, that, would, uh, that also complicates it. Uh, there's a, hmm, a lot of question marks. More questions than answers, I think, is what we can safely say uh, about what we've discussed here.
1: And pretty much every week on this
0: podcast. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, Okay, Dave Cameron, you've done it. Uh, Thank you for joining us. All right. That's uh, that's Dave Cameron. Stick around for a second. That's uh, Dave Cameron, our managing editor. Uh, The Blinkless Wonder. I am Carson Stouli, and this has been FanGraphs Audio.